the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Solicitation of insurance. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. If you want to know how to be angry and sin not, then be angry at sin alone. See, we're not talking about your personal peeve, but if it's an offense to God, if it's, it's hurtful to people. You and I need to get angry. We need to express that in passionate actions. Go ahead and be angry. If it's over the right thing and it's expressed in the right way, at the right time in the right proportion, go ahead. God created us as emotional beings, but a lot of people are surprised to learn that God is an emotional being too. So how do we adopt God's emotions? How do we love the things He loves and hate the things He hates? Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy turns straight to God's Word for insight into how we can become more like Christ. It's a message about being angry without falling into sin. Here now is Philip DeCourcy with today's message. Now, as we come to Mark chapter 11, Jesus reminds us that the servant is not greater than the master. And in the passage before us, we're going to see the Lord Jesus encounter the religious establishment of his day. And he's going to set about draining the swamp that was Jerusalem. That's what we have here in the cleansing of the temple. We have the Lord Jesus turning the tables on the Jewish leadership and the corrupt worship of his day. He has just entered the city. He's been recognized by some as the promised king. As he looks upon the temple, his father's house, he is struck by the smugness, the corruption, the emptiness, and the inversion that was taking place in the religious life of the nation. Worship was about impressing man rather than pleasing God. This is verses 12 through 14. Follow along. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So, this is what I call Christ's illustration. This was a fig tree that had nothing but leaves. It was all leaves, no fruit. It is what one commentator called a hypocritical fig tree because it kind of promised that you might find something there you could eat, but it never fulfilled its promise. And so Jesus in response says, well, since I can't eat from you, no one's going to eat from you. And you have another nature miracle of Jesus. It's one of the few destructive nature miracles. 
Usually Jesus enhances something or corrects something. Here he curses something. This is a prophetic act of prophetic symbolism and significance. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament and look at passages like Hosea 9, verse 10, Nahum 3, verse 12, and Zechariah 3, verse 10, you're going to find that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were often likened to a fig tree. And a lot of commentators, and I agree with them, is what we have here is an object lesson. Jesus curses the fig tree because it didn't bear fruit. It was all leaves. Jesus saying, the temple's going to be judged. This is my father's house, Ichabod. The glory has departed. You've turned it into a den of thieves. It's all leaves. It's all religious, you know, activity without substance. There's no real fruit. There's no repentance here. There's no faith here. There's no prayer here. There's no true worship of God here. The scriptures have been relegated to a place beneath your traditions. This is Jesus acting prophetically. Because when we get to Mark 13, which isn't far away, he will speak about the destruction of the temple. So that's what we might call Christ's illustration. Secondly, we've got Christ's indignation. This has got us at verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem... Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow them to carry wares through the temple. Then he said, teaching them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's a reference from Isaiah 56. But you have made it into a den of thieves. That's a reference from Jeremiah 7. You and I have got to appreciate afresh the significance of the temple within the life of the nation. This is where the Holy of Holies was housed. This is where God was meant to meet His people. This is where His concentrated glory was to be found amidst the nations. What Vatican City is to Rome, what the Capitol Building is to Washington, what Westminster Abbey is to London, what the Eiffel Tower is to Paris, the temple was to the Jewish people and more. So given that significance, how significant is the act of the Lord Jesus? Temple desecrated, violence in the court of the Gentiles, trouble, fighting, confrontation. The significance of the place simply magnifies the significance of Jesus driving out the merchants and confronting the money changers. Two things that I want to consider with you, and I think there'll be a application in it for all of us. Number one is the passion. I mean, there's passion here. He began to drive them out. There was no pretty pleas. Jesus violently throws the tables over. This was his father's house. It was to be a house of praise, not profit. It was for the nations, and now the Gentiles were being excluded. This had become a kind of sick, sad, nationalistic symbol of an inverted, inbred nationalism among the people of God, marked by corruption and compromise. And I would just want to remind myself, I need to be very careful here, because there is a place to express anger. It's got to be in the right way over the right issue at the right time in the right proportion. That's not easy. But there is a time for you and I to be good and angry. Because I think people have the impression Christians should never be angry. You know? We should be meek and lowly and humble and just take it on the chin. You know? Let live as a kind of philosophy. No. There are some things that should engage us in spirit 
that should make us angry and indignant. You can be good and angry. When you and I are confronted with injustice and exploitation and religious hypocrisy and flagrant evil that robs God of His glory and mankind of its good, you and I ought not to sit by. Followers of Jesus Christ can be good and angry. Jesus Christ was. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 4.26 something very interesting? Be angry and sin not. You know? Go ahead and be angry. If it's over the right thing and it's expressed in the right way, at the right time in the right proportion, go ahead. Just be careful it doesn't become sinful, petty, personal. I like what one of the Puritans said, and I've quoted several times. If you want to know how to be angry and sin not, then be angry at sin alone. See, we're not talking about your personal peeve or the things that kind of get under your skin. That can't become an occasion for anger. But if it's sin, if it's an offense to God, if it's, it's hurtful to people in a bad way, you and I need to get angry. We need to express that in passionate actions. Listen, I think that is so much the case that sometimes it's a sin not to be angry. You know, we're frightened about being angry and sinning, and so we should. But we also should be frightened to be non-angry and sinful, to let things go by, to don't have a heart for what's going on in our nation or across the world, or the exploitation of women and children and those caught in war zones, those who are slaves to religious hypocrisy and falsehood. Paul was provoked in Acts 17 by what he saw, the idolatry in the city of Athens. You and I can be provoked, and we need to express that provocation in a Christ-like manner, but it can be good and angry. In fact, fanaticism, while a great danger, is not as great a danger as insipid indifference. The opposite of love isn't hatred. The opposite of love is indifference, not caring. So that's the passion Let's be challenged by it. Number two, the protest. Another word could be purge. And he acts on what he sees and what he hears, and he drives out those who buy and sell in the temple. He overturns tables, those belonging to the money changers and the seats belonging to those that sold doves. There was a crass commercialism that was spoiling the worship of God. As David Gooding says in his commentary on Luke, instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by God, the priests had become middlemen, turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make a financial profit of man's quest for God. It's terrible. And now it was a den of thieves. That's an interesting phrase, by the way. G. Campbell Morgan, the great English expositor, talked about the fact, what is a den of thieves? Well, it's a hideout for thieves. It's a place where thieves go to to kind of cover their sins and cover their tracks. And he makes this argument, it's a powerful one, that the temple and all its religious activity had become a hideaway for these priests who were now corrupt and criminal. And so to hide their criminality, to hide the corruption, they hid it behind their religious activities. The place was a hideaway for spiritual thieves. Kind of scary. And then you see Jesus' anger over it all. Nothing but leaves. No fruit. And he protests it. Because people were being extorted. As we've said, there was a temple tax of a half a shackle. 
And you know what? They'd come up and maybe they had Roman or Greek coins and they'd have to be exchanged into shackles and the money changers were there and they extorted it, you know? You've been at a place abroad or you're going through LAX and you need to change some dollars into pounds or pesos or whatever. And you know they've got you at the Bureau of Exchange. Drives me crazy. And they can make 40 and 50 and 60 dollars off your exchange. Something worse than that was going on here. And you know what? It was hard to worship God after you get ripped off. You're not in a very worshipful spirit when you get ripped off. And the fact that Jesus mentions the seed of the doves is very interesting. Because if you go back to Leviticus 14.22, the dove was the poor man's offering. If you were a blue-collar guy where you had to pinch your pennies to get through life, you could buy doves. But even here, those who sold doves, the implication seems to be, were ripping off the poor. Jesus had enough of it. He kicks their seats over and turns over the tables of the money changers. This was to be a house of prayer. Now it was a house of profit. If there was any praying going on, it was all leaves. It was religious conformity without heart. That's why John Bunyan says, better your heart be without words than your words be without heart when you're praying. And then finally, there was the exclusion of the Gentiles. Did you notice what Jesus said? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen to these words by David Garland, who's got an excellent commentary on Mark in the NIV application series. You see, that's a quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. But if you go back up to Isaiah 56 and verse 3, the foreigner is addressed. The foreigner who thinks he's got no place in the house of God. And God says, you come to my house and your name will be there forever. You see, Israel was a missionary nation. Of course, God had set his love upon Israel in a special way, but he had called that nation to be evangelistic to the other nations. The seed of Abraham would bless all the nations. And you see in Zechariah on a future day, this picture of the nations coming up to a rebuilt temple under the rule of Jesus Christ and worshiping. That's the way it should have been. In fact, in Acts 8, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch returning to Ethiopia after worshiping in Jerusalem. But for the most part, Gentiles were excluded. That outer court would ought to have been a place bustling with Persians and Assyrians and those who had come from other nations. They were excluded. And it was now a den of thieves. And this guy catches it. The passage cited from Isaiah 56 verse 7 my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, means that God did not plan for the temple to become a national shrine for Israel. I love that phrase. It was not meant to be a national shrine, but it had become that. There was no room for Gentiles, and there was corruption within the nation. Read Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, and you'll see that. Here's what David Carland also says. In Jesus' day, the temple had become a nationalistic symbol that served only to divide Israel from the nations. You know, this is our temple. You're not welcome here. God had left the place for starters. And all you had left was this empty religion that had become insipid and insular. And Jesus sees it. This is no longer a house of prayer for all nations. It's become a nationalistic shrine. It's an offense to God. So there's the protest. I think the tragedy 
and that which you and I want to think about is that the worship of Israel had become exclusive and heartless. The court of the Gentiles had become a den of thieves where God was robbed of his glory and the Gentiles were robbed of a chance to encounter the God of Israel who dwells among his people in great power and glory. Is there something for you and I to think about? I think so. Here's two applications I have for you and I personally and as a church. You know what? We're embarking upon a building program, God willing, in the next year or so. We've actually got a master plan in with the city of Anaheim. It's our desire to develop the facilities here. It's our desire, if Jesus doesn't come soon, to leave a legacy for generations to come. We want to build a new auditorium. We want to build a new education building, a new children's wing. And we're going to set about doing that. But I have a fear. You should have a fear. And we need to keep ourselves accountable. I think that's all proper. But here's my fear. As we press forward with a building program that we keep ministry and the needs of people paramount. Because it's never about a building. It's about what happens in the building for the glory of God. And if we're in the middle of a building project and we lose sight of that, we've lost our way. And God forbid we invite the wrath of the Lord Jesus. Because it was all leaves. It was all buildings and budgets. But there was no real ministry going on of prayer and evangelism and the discipling of the nations. I like the story of an old, crusty, Bible-believing Christian who was getting a tour of one of the big cathedrals in England. And after they had finished the tour and he'd heard about the kings and the queens that had been married there and the events that had taken place there and the important people that were now members there, or buried there, the guide asked the tourists if they had any questions. And this lover of the Lord Jesus put his hand up and says, I have a question. Has anybody been saved here recently? It's a great question. Well, I was in Cambridge and I visited some of the most beautiful buildings I've seen. But before the afternoon was done, we were taken to a Puritan church, which was a simple building and all the walls were white because the building was simply a functional place for the preaching of the gospel. It didn't need to be ornate. It didn't need to have this, because it was about the gospel. It was about the church. It was about the glory of Jesus Christ, not kings and queens and fancy buildings. Let's keep that question in front of us as we go forward. Are people being saved? Are people being discipled? Are we praying and worshiping God with pure hearts? Well, then God will come down upon a building and bless it, not curse it. Here's the other application. Let's make sure that we don't become inbred as a church. We do say, and rightly so, that the church gathers to worship and scatters to evangelize. We do focus on discipling our children here and discipling the next generation for Jesus Christ. But let's make room for the Gentiles. Let's start to fill these empty seats with unsaved and lost people who are broken and need the healing message of Jesus Christ, who need to be loved by us. Let's not become so inbred and so insensitive that we forget why we exist. We exist for people who are not yet here. We're fishers of man, not keepers of the aquarium. And that's what went on here. This was a building that had been dedicated for God and by God for the blessing of all nations. But it had become a nationalistic shrine. It had become inbred and insensitive to the world around it. God forbid that we become that. Let's keep up that spirit that so many have encountered when they come here. We don't look at a man's, the color of his skin or the cut of his clothes. We don't worry who you are and where you're from. If you'll come and sit under God's word, we're going to love you. We're going to embrace you. We're going to help you find the Lord Jesus Christ and get your life in order. Live according to God's will.
Let's do that. You know what will help us do that? Let's think about people theologically, not culturally. It's how politicians want to divide us all up into categories. They no longer address us as Americans, as a nation. They want to divide us up and play identity politics. That's what the world does. It divides us up. But that's not what the gospel does. Well, not in the big sense. Of course, there are two categories in God's kingdom. There's the saved and there's the lost. And the saved who were once lost are all about getting the lost now saved. Other than that, in the gospel, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. We can all be one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let the way the world carves us up ever enter this church. This is a place for all nations to encounter the presence of God in the gospel and his people and to find love and grace among those people. Let's not look at people culturally but theologically. Let's think about the lost continually. Romans 9 verse 2, Paul says, I think about Israel with a heavy heart continually. Are you thinking about lost people? A lot. Because there's a lot of them. And a lot of them need Christ immediately. And meditate upon the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11. Paul says, I'm what I am by the grace of God. You want to understand me? It's the grace of God at work in me. And folks, as you and I meditate upon the grace of God, we'll never be graceless to people who are graceless. Because you know what? It's the last thing a Christian would want to do is to look down on a lost person. Unless we've absolutely forgot that we were lost and we don't deserve what we got any more than they deserve what we're presenting them. So I'm just challenged by this. Here was the court of the Gentiles, the house of prayer for all nations. And it had become insipid and inbred and insensitive. And Jesus was angry. The church is his temple. Metaphorically speaking, there used to be a court of the Gentiles among us, room for people to come from all nations and backgrounds and encounter the gospel, be wonderfully saved and discipled. We want to be a mosaic of all kinds of people because that best reflects the gospel. I like what President Lyndon B. Johnson reportedly inscribed on a doormat in his ranch home in Texas. On the doormat, he had these words, the whole world is welcome here. That's good, isn't it? That'd be a good doormat outside the sanctuary here. The whole world is welcome here. We're going to guard ourselves against James 2 and playing favorites with people who come here. Well, there are kind of people. There's only two kinds of people, saved and lost. And we're saved, thank God. Let's have a heart for the lost. We are most like Jesus when we have a heart for the lost. That's Philip DeCourcy here on Know the Truth. We're continuing our Essential Jesus series with today's message called Turning the Tables. Have you caught all of Philip's teaching in the Gospel of Mark? If not, you can listen online at ktt.org. Well, as a listener to Know the Truth, we know that you care about the real meaning of Christmas, and you may be thinking of ways to prepare your heart for the celebration of Jesus' birth. So Philip has selected one of his favorite books to take you through the holidays. It's titled Child in the Manger by Sinclair Ferguson, and it's all about the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus is central to Christmas, but more importantly, he's central to the Bible and God's story of redemption for all mankind. Make this Christmas more meaningful when you request Child in the Manger. It's yours when you make a generous donation to Know the Truth. Call 888-644-8811. Again, that's 888-644-8811. 
or give online at ktt.org. And if you prefer, mail your donation to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. Your gift to Know the Truth helps to get this Bible teaching program out on the airwaves and on the Internet. And we're so grateful for your partnership as we share the good news. When you reach out, we'd also like to send you a free CD message from Philip called Finding the Heart to Go On. We know this time of year can bring both joy and sorrow, so Philip offers you deep encouragement from God's Word. Ask for the free CD when you call 888-644-8811. And if you are going through a difficult season right now, we'd love to pray for you. Again, give us a call at 888-644-8811. Well, that's our program for today. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow as we continue to learn from Jesus on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. and my mom named her revolutionary hair color company after me. My mom taught me that women can do anything they set their mind to. Hi, I'm Madison's mom, Amy Errett. I founded Madison Reed with the idea to create luxurious, ammonia-free, salon-quality at-home hair color that saves women time and money. In under an hour and for less than $25, Madison Reed delivers gorgeous, multi-dimensional, shiny hair. I'm proud to say Madison Reed is a female-led company. From our chief marketing officer to our master colorist, we are all women and top experts in our field. Founded in love, we are a hair color company led by women, made for women. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Use code GRATEFUL. That's code GRATEFUL. Try it. Love it. That's the beauty of Madison Reed. Bingo. On November 7th, three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.